This morning, we're going to talk about what God says is of first importance. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 11. That would be page 961 in your pew Bible, uh, which should be underneath uh, a chair near you, if you would like to follow along. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He's about to say it. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. What is of first importance? Christ. Christ is of first importance. Christ is of first importance because it is through the gospel that God works to take people from death to life. And when we think about the gospel, we tend to think in terms of the benefits that are given to us by God through the gospel. You know, our sins are forgiven and uh, we go to live with God in heaven when we die. And th these things are true, but, but scripture pushes us to understand that the gospel primarily is not how it relates to us as beneficiaries, but rather how it relates to the benefactor. That is, the emphasis is upon what Christ has done, not on our response to it. The gospel is Jesus Christ. He is the gospel. He is given to us with all the blessings of God contained in him. So Christ is not merely the key to the treasure. Christ is the treasure. He is the gospel. His whole life, his teachings, he is the gospel. This is what we're going to talk about this morning. And we need to talk about the gospel because there are so many people who really don't understand it, even those who identify as Christians. Uh, the um, great preacher from a few dec decades ago, a, a British uh, physician who turned preacher and theologian, uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, used to ask people a certain diagnostic question to determine whether they understood the gospel or not. And so here is the question he asked. Do you consider yourself to be a Christian? Uh, yes or no? And if they say yes, he would say, why? Why do you consider yourself to be a Christian? And if they would respond with something like this, well, I'm, I'm trying hard to live by the Bible. I'm, I'm trying really hard to be like Christ. And that is a, a typical response. Uh, but anyone who responds in that fashion really doesn't understand the gospel. The gospel is all about grace. And so many people think it's all about works. Sometimes people will admit that they do not consider themselves to be a Christian. 
and they are not really interested in becoming one. So at this point, you could say something like this. Okay, fair enough. But wouldn't it be a good idea to understand what it is that you are rejecting before you just do it categorically without hearing what it has to say at all? Perhaps you'll gain a hearing. You know, there are a lot of people out there and probably some people in here who really don't understand the gospel. And so that's why we need to talk about it. So let's begin. What is the gospel? Is it good advice or is it good news? What's the difference? Well, the gospel is good news. Um, The the word gospel is not really uh, a a church word, uh, a religious word. Uh, The the word gospel uh, means good news. And in uh, the days of antiquity, uh, there would be someone who would be a messenger uh, when good news was to be announced, like the, if uh, the, the army was victorious in battle, uh, then this messenger would come with good news and announce it to the city. Or if there was a coronation of the king, something really important, uh, they would send this messenger. And the, uh, the, the, the term that they used in the days of antiquity for this messenger was the word evangelist. So the, the word, it's what an evangelist is someone who brings good news. So they, these are not really church words. These are, are words, you know, gospel and evangelist. These are words that were part of the everyday vernacular, you know, long ago in, in, the, in the first century. So uh, the, the gospel is good news. Every other religion is good advice. What do we mean by that? Well, the founders of every other religion are teachers and not saviors. So, therefore, their their lives are not at the core of what their religion is all about. It's their advice, uh, their, their teachings, not their lives that are important. You know, there's always a set of instructions or uh, directions that come with every other religion. Uh, You'll get a list of things that you must do. So, for example, in Islam, you have five pillars. These are things that you must do. Uh, If you are interested in Buddhism, there is an eightfold path to enlightenment that you must follow if you want to reach uh, the state of enlightenment. And so since the, the founders of these religions are teachers, that's what they emphasize, the things that you must do. But the gospel is not a set of directions. The gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is not about what you need to do. It's about what Christ has already done. If you look at the text more carefully, you will notice that there is nothing here about what you must do. Nothing about faith, nothing about repentance, not a word about baptism. It's all about what Christ has done. That he died, was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. Now, of course, in response to the gospel, you do have to believe, you do have to repent. Baptism is something that's commanded. But, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in what might be called checklist theology. You know, you got a list of things that you got to do. Well, you got to believe, you got to repent, you got to confess, you got to be baptized, you got to live a, a, a good life. All the emphasis upon what you do. That's not the gospel. The gospel is what Christ has done for us on our behalf. So nothing you do or can do or should do can ever be the basis of your acceptance by God. Salvation is by grace and by grace alone, lest anyone should boast. So the gospel is not good advice. It is good news. The emphasis is not on what you do, but on what Christ has already done for you. Jesus lived a perfect life. This is important. What if Jesus had not lived a perfect life? What if he had committed 
even one sin, some sin that we might consider to be, you know, really not all that consequential. Could Jesus still have qualified to be our Savior? Not a chance. See, he would have deserved death because of his own sin, and so he would not, therefore, be free to accept the transference of our sins upon him. It is absolutely essential that we understand that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life so that he could qualify to be the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. He who knew no sin became sin for our sakes, was nailed to the cross, remained on the cross until he died and then was buried, but on the third day he rose again and appeared to many. That's what Paul is saying in this in this section of scripture. And these are the core elements of the gospel. And they are all miraculous, but it gets even more miraculous when the gospel is presented. Because here's what happens. When, when you present the gospel to someone, and that person uh, may not be a believer, but through hearing what you have to say, the Holy Spirit opens their spiritual eyes and ears and in effect takes someone who is spiritually dead and brings them to life so that they can understand and receive this good word. So the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It's all the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life that's offered to us in the person of Christ. That's why the gospel is such good news. Now, what does the gospel do? Well, the gospel does three main things. Uh, I'll come back to this later. Uh, first of all, it deals with our most fundamental problem, which is sin. It transforms us into people who are like Christ, and it provides everything you've always longed for. Oh, let me leave that there. <laughs> All right, I showed you the picture of the car, so now i got to tell you this story. For those of you who are not aware of uh, classic cars, uh, this is a 1961 Chevrolet Impala. Uh, the 50s were, late 50s were, um, and 1960 were not good years for uh, stylish cars, but 1961 kind of broke through that barrier. So my freshman year in Bible college, uh, there was a guy who lived down the hall from me who, this was not his car, but it was similar to that. It was black, and he had chrome wheels, and uh, it was in pristine condition. Uh, he, it was the envy of every guy in the dorm. Uh, the whole campus, I think, just kind of drooled over it every time they'd see him drive by. Well, I, I can't remember the, the guy's name, um, but he had a roommate whose name I can't remember either. Um, <laughs> but I do remember the story of what happened. Okay? So the, the car owner's roommate decided he'd like to go to town, and he didn't have a car, but hey, his roommate had this really cool classic 61 Impala. So he decided to drive his car uh, without asking. So, uh, you know, he rummaged through. He knew where his uh, roommate kept the keys to the car, took it while his roommate was in class, uh, went to town, and uh, guess what happened? <laughs> uh, he, he totaled the car. Uh, so, it was a big story on the campus. It's a small school anyway, and especially on our floor where all of that happened. And uh, there was such, such turmoil. What, what are we going to do to solve this? Now, think about this situation and think about if you could put yourself in the place of the guy who owned this car and your roommate, without your permission, took your car and crashed it. And then your roommate says, hey, in spite of all this, I, I hope we can still be friends. How would you respond? What would you say? 
well, you'd say something like this. Now, you, you wouldn't use these words, but, but here's what you would be uh, actually intending to say. We are in a state of alienation. Now, you probably wouldn't use those words. You probably use the words that were more emotionally charged and words that would probably come to your, uh, your, your tongue quicker uh, than the term, we are in a state of alienation. But to describe the situation, you would be in a state of alienation with this guy. And uh, not only are you in a state of alienation, uh, this state of alienation is both legal and it is personal. So uh, the question would be, you know, what are you going to do about what you did to me? Before there can be any restoration of the relationship, uh, you know, there is a legal matter, there's a personal matter. Uh, you had to make this up. Uh, there is an injustice that has to be addressed, you know, if you're going to be friends with this guy again. Now, if you can imagine owning a car like what you see on the screen <laughs> and, uh you know, a, a friend taking it and crashing it and uh, no ability to repay and not, not really all that concerned about what he did, but still wants to be close friends, then you should be able to understand a state of, a state of alienation. Apart from Christ, we are all in a state of alienation from God. We commit sin after sin after sin. We think it's no big deal. We still like to be chummy with God. But we don't understand that the sins that we have committed against God that cause us to be in a state of alienation are both legal and personal. So, hopefully, if you understand why our sins against God are personal and legal, you can understand why Jesus came as a Savior and not as a teacher, primarily. You see, Jesus came to make up the difference. He came to pay the penalty, to bridge the gap between that, that state of alienation and to uh, you know, pay the, the price of restoration. You know, teachers come and say, well, here's how to be sorry and how to do better. Here's, here's a good way to apologize where people are, are going to accept it. But you know, that approach does nothing to deal with the problem of alienation or the barrier that's between you and the other party. That Jesus came to deal with the barrier that is between us and God. So how did he do that? Substitution. I want to go back to uh, verse 3 for just a moment and show you where we see the concept of substitution. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. You know, the word that's translated for, you see here, um, in, in English, this is the, the best translation that the translators uh, could come up with. Um, Fortunately, in the original language, uh, there are more prepositions than what we have in English. Um, so uh, the, the, the original word here is huper, which means on behalf of or in place of. So what Paul is saying here is this. When Christ died for our sins, it means he traded places with us. You know, God substituted Christ for our place on the cross. And he places us at Christ's place at the table. So, you know, the concept of substitution is absolutely critical to understanding both sin and salvation. Uh, John R. W. Stott, who was an English Anglican priest and theologian, died a few years ago. But he put it like this. He said, sin is substituting yourself for God. Sin is when you decide that you are in charge of your own life because you assume that you created yourself. You got here all by yourself. So when you say, I want to be my own person, I want to call the shots in my life, 
What you're saying is, I am my own maker. I am my own creator. I am my own God. So sin is substituting yourself for God. But salvation is God substituting himself for you. The principle of substitution is absolutely essential to understand both sin and salvation. The gospel of Christ deals with our sin. What else does the gospel do? Well, let's look at uh, verse 3 again. Well, it's still here. Um, I want to point out another word here where um, uh, highlight the word ours, that Christ died for our sins. Notice that he did not say your sins. That would have been easy enough to say. I mean, if you understand who uh, Paul was, uh, he was someone, if, uh, if you go to Philippians 3, I don't have this on a slide, but I'll, I'll read this portion uh, from the third chapter. He says, if, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You get that last statement. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He is saying he considered himself to be without sin. But something happened when Christ confronted him. And now he is writing, by the way, uh, this portion of scripture that we are reading now, uh, 1 Corinthians, is the oldest book in the New Testament. It's written about 20 years after the resurrection. So you know, when Paul says, uh, if you need evidence about uh, the resurrection, go, go talk to these people. Uh, they are... Uh, the ones who will confirm what I'm saying. But the point I want to make here is Paul understands now that he has been confronted with what his sin really is, really the self-righteous attitude that he had. But he includes himself here as someone who needs Christ. He needs a Savior. It's really hard for anyone to feel the need for a savior if you don't think that you're a sinner. Compared, we compare ourselves to other people. <laughs> Easy enough to do. Uh, Paul is recognizing that his righteousness, his law keeping was not enough. He needed the death of Christ to atone for his sins as much as anyone else. And so he says, Christ died for our sins. Now that's a lot for someone like Paul, who's been careful in keeping the law uh, to, to admit. He, he's admitting that he needs Christ just as much as the next person. He puts himself in the same category as everyone else, the category of those who are sinners. But he doesn't stop there. He's, he's saying something else. He's saying that you know, the, the people that I've been taught all my life to avoid uh, and have nothing to do with, the, the Gentiles, the people I would not want to eat with because they are ceremonially unclean. And if I get close to them, then I would be unclean. And uh, you couldn't wear a mask in those days and prevent yourself from getting uh, you know, unclean by uh, unclean people. And now Paul is saying, these people I used to avoid all the time, now I'm spending all my time with them. And why is that? Because, he's saying, we're, we're really not any different. He's saying, I'm really no different from the worst sinner. And in fact, as he says in another context, I am the chief of sinners. So, uh, you know, even though we all sin in different ways, Paul says we are all equally lost and equally in need of God's grace. So what was it that turned Paul from a self-righteous racist into a person who warmly embraces all people? 
the gospel. The gospel transformed Paul. Let's talk about the world we live in for just a moment. It's really not any different than the the way the world has always been. It seems that there are, you know, two major groups of people. There are the people that you associate with who think right. Their philosophy is correct. Their political affiliation is the right one. Well, what's wrong with people? I mean, what's wrong with the world is those other people out there who don't think like you. That's the problem in the world. What we need to do is make sure they think like us. And if we could transform those people, then we'd solve all the problems in the world. Everyone would think like me. (laughs) Whatever context you want to take. Let's take today's context. Liberals pointing fingers at conservatives. Conservatives pointing their fingers right back at them. Uh, Democrats and Republicans, this race of people or that race, you know, each people, I mean, each group is saying the same thing. You see those people over there? They are what's wrong with the world. It's those people. But the fundamental problem with the world is not those people. The fundamental problem with the world is in here. We're all sinners. Every one of us. Every one of us is in need of grace. So what we need is not the transformation of those people. What we need is for all people everywhere to be transformed into Christ-like followers of the Savior. And what has the power to do that? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the gospel deals with our most fundamental problem, which is sin. The gospel transforms us into Christ-like people. And then there's one final thing that the gospel does. That is that the gospel provides everything you've ever longed for. In other words, the gospel satisfies. What do you long for? What would be the ultimate satisfaction for you? Well, how about if you were fabulously wealthy? Maybe if you were a billionaire, would that do it? If you looked around lately, there are a lot of billionaires who really aren't all that happy. But what if you were, in addition to being fabulous wealthy, you were perpetually young and healthy? Yeah. Rich, young, good-looking, strong. That sounds pretty good. Would that be enough? Probably not. There's still trouble in the world. The wicked still prosper. They get away with murder, literally and figuratively. It seems that there is no justice. So what if in addition to being fabulously wealthy and being the picture of health, and you never grew old, and you also live in a world where everything is made right, all evil is punished, and all threats are defeated. We're getting closer, aren't we, to satisfaction. Is anything missing? What about relationships? What about the people you love? You know, uh, kids grow up. I know the calendar says that, you know, generally from the time they're born to the time they're 18, uh, it takes 18 years, but I think it only takes three or four. Uh, it, it goes by so quickly looking back. And then um, you know, kids sometimes go away to college, then they get a job somewhere else, and you see them once or twice a year. Isn't that the way life is? in the world today. So uh, to be really satisfied, wouldn't it be nice to have
people you love, your family, your friends close to you, and there's never a rift in those relationships, that'd be really nice. So, you ever wonder why we love fairy tales so much? Fairy tales and fantasies and science fiction. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, addressed this question in an essay, and basically, uh, here's what he said. Uh, the reason we love fairy tales, he says, and fantasy and science fiction is this, is that they depict everything that we long for. And then he mentioned a few things that we long for that show up in novels and movies, and here they are. He says, time travel. He says, we, we long to step outside of time. And another thing is escape from death and a love that doesn't end, that's never broken. Communication with non-human beings. And finally, the defeat of evil. We have incredible longings for those things. One day, you know, in the meantime, all we can do is imagine what it would be like through the, the reading of fairy tales and fantasies and science fiction and some people are so gifted they can imagine stories that go along with those longings and write it down and we just kind of escape for a while and imagine what it would be like to have the fulfillment, the satisfaction that, that comes when you immerse yourself into a story like that. But there is a better story a true and better story of God who humbled himself to the point of becoming a seed inside the virgin's womb and being born to a poor family, growing up in a backwater town, never committing a sin, performing miracles, teaching wonderful things, and then ends up humiliated and shamefully, painfully uh, executed on a cross and resurrects on the third day and says that all who believe, really believe this story, and embrace the Christ of the story, the gospel. All of these things we talked about that we long for are yours. It's true. How do we know it's true? Well, it's based on historical fact, the resurrection. You know, Paul is saying, you know, if, if, if you're not convinced of what I'm saying to you is true, you can go ask these people. You know, in, in, in uh, our day, when uh, you're, you're writing a, a research paper or uh, something like that, uh, you need to include footnotes so that whoever is reading it can say, oh, okay, uh, uh, here, here's where this person uh, got the idea, and here's where I can go to for verification of, of, of what he's saying in his paper. Well, they didn't have footnotes in those days. What they had was live witnesses. So Paul is saying, um, check my footnotes. By the way, speaking of footnotes, um, in, in my generation, uh, I heard from father and mother, especially father, uh, well, when I was your age, I had to walk to school um, in the snow, uphill, both ways. Uh, any of you ever hear those stories? Um, so I wonder, what am I going to tell my kids? Well, when I was your age, I had to write a term paper and type it on a manual typewriter without spell check, without clicking the little tab at the top that says reference and have uh, the number down there. All you got to do is type in the information. You know, in, in my day, when you typed out a term paper, you had to get it precise. Uh, you, you were only permitted two 
mistakes per page, maybe a maximum of five for the whole paper. And you couldn't get too close to the bottom. If the footnote was too, too far down, you had to do it all over again. That's what I'm telling my kids. What are you going to tell your kids? When I, when I was your age, I had to manually click this tab that said reference and type it in myself. All you got to do is say, Alexa, footnote, <laughs> fill it in. Alexa, do this term paper, you know, and there you go. All right, enough about footnotes. Um, well, Paul is saying, look, I've got footnotes here. I've got references. Uh, he, here are people who are still alive who are eyewitnesses to the fact of the resurrection. And why is the resurrection so, so vital? Let me put it to you like this. Um, suppose you go into a store, and um, this happened to me a few times. You go in the store and you're on your way out and the little buzzer sounds and then uh, this person comes up to you and says, excuse me, sir, uh, could, could I check uh, the items in your bag to make sure that they're actually yours? Uh, well, you know, it's embarrassing and uh, you're a little offended because you, you paid for it and uh, he's not real sure that uh, these items really are yours. So what do you do? You pull out written verification that these items are indeed yours. Written verification. We call it a receipt, but it's written verification, just like a footnote. And when you, you think about the, the, the resurrection, um, re remember that in, 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 in those days, if uh, you were in debt and you couldn't pay, and this has been the case for hundreds, if not thousands of years. If you could not pay your debt, you could be sold into slavery until you worked your debt off, or sometimes you were thrown into jail. And how, do you, how, how could you prove that your debt had been paid? Well, it's if you were released from slavery, or if you were released from jail. The fact that you're walking around in freedom is testimony to the reality that you were free. And the testimony, the written verification, the eyewitness testimony that your sins have been paid for, what, is the way, what are the wages of sin? The wages of sin are death, right? So when Jesus went to the cross and then he went to the tomb, he descended to the dead, and on the third day he resurrected. He left your sins there. And the fact that he was resurrected, the fact that he sprung forth from the dead is proof that he took your sins to the grave, never to be seen again. So when Christ paid the debt, he's released from bondage. This is our proof that, our, that payment for our sins has been accepted. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not good advice. It is good news. The gospel of Christ deals with our most fundamental problem, sin. The gospel of Christ transforms us into Christ-like people. And the gospel of Christ provides everything we've always longed for. No wonder this is the thing that God says is of first importance. Christ and his gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father, humbly and with a sense of awe, we acknowledge that your gospel is so wonderful that it's often hard to believe that it could really be true. While we are here in this world, we uh, still, still deal with the effects of, of sin, even though uh, most of us here have been Christians for, for some time, we, we still struggle with sin. And we wonder sometimes 
am I really a Christian? Would a real Christian think like this or act like this? So Lord, we, we pray for the, the resurrection along with the perfect life and uh, death of Christ to be effectual in our lives. I ask, Lord, that uh, you open the eyes of those who have not been able to see, open the ears who, of those who have not been able to hear, uh, both in this place and in our uh, communities with family and friends, that this gospel, uh, this good news, would have miraculous impact and bring those who are dead in sins to life in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.
If you would please uh, take your communion cup and uh, go ahead and peel the, the top layer off and uh, take out the wafer. And I uh, might as well go ahead and peel back the second layer and uh, expose the juice, which is harder to do than it seems. Really hard. <laughs> We don't want to have distractions more than we can help. In um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the passage that we examined in part uh, in, in the sermon, we, we heard these words uh, several times. For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now these, bear, these words bear a striking, striking resemblance to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And these words are familiar to us and uh, we'll get to those words in just a moment. Um, but I want to note something of significance first. Paul makes a connection between the observance of the Lord's Supper and the gospel. In each case, Paul delivers what he also received from a reliable source. We have the gospel from a reliable source, from the testimony of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ through the record of Scripture. And we have a record of eyewitnesses of what Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And here is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he refers to what happened in the upper room, the night of Jesus' betrayal. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, and after he had blessed it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he also said, right after that, for as often as as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. By participating in communion, we are visibly declaring Christ and his gospel. Before we pray, uh, two or three um, uh, needs I want to bring to your attention. Um, uh, may we continue to pray for our Grant's father, uh, Robert Sterling, at, uh, at age 94, a triple bypass surgery. So we pray for his recovery. Uh, we continue to pray, to pray for Linda Zimmerly. Um, she struggles through many uh, health issues. Uh, COVID is still not going away. Uh, it does complicate a lot of things. Uh, school is starting soon. Uh, a lot of different places. Extra stress. Um, so we want to pray for everyone involved. And um, there are opportunities uh, for sharing the gospel um, that will be made available to us. And um, may we take advantage of those. So uh, let's ask the Lord to help us.
Our gracious Father, coming to you in prayer is such a privilege. It's an acknowledgement that you are listening, an acknowledgement that you are here. Um, you are everywhere at the same time. We can't comprehend that. It's impossible for us to do so. But through the testimony of your written word and um, the testimony of witnesses that have been passed down to us, we are assured that you are indeed with us even now. And we are grateful also that not only are you with us, but for those of us who have received you, you have given us the gift of your indwelling Holy Spirit. And we're thankful for so many reasons, but in particular, we're, we're grateful for the promise that when we don't know how to pray as we ought, that the Spirit intercedes for us with sighs and groanings that are too deep for words. Uh, so, Lord, for, for those who are at that point where they really don't know how to express what they want to say uh, due to uh, pain or sickness or situation or problem or um, trouble with relationships, so, Whatever the situation is, uh, Lord, would you hear those prayers now? And as we uh, continue to, to intercede uh, for those uh, who are, are weakened uh, because of illness, uh, we pray for um, uh, Bob Sterling, for uh, Linda uh, Zimmerly, and for Kevin's friend, uh, Helen, uh, with uh, kidney problems, uh, have mercy upon them. Um, may we have your grace, Lord, as we deal with COVID, uh, with the inconveniences, uh, with the, the danger, um, with the problems uh, that it presents um, in addition to uh, the disease. Um, we, we pray for your grace. Uh, may we be good representatives of you in uh, this time of uh, the key word I guess we hear now is unprecedented times, at, at least for us. And um, we do pray for opportunities. Uh, may we recognize opportunities uh, to share your good news uh, when you bring them to us. And now as we As we close the prayer, um, may we join our voices together as we uh, recite the prayer that you taught your disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. <clears throat>